You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to finish up today looking at John 3, verse 16. And before we begin, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it has been the delight and desire of our heart to be able to express to you our love, our adoration, our praise, our thankfulness for all that you've done for us in Christ. And now, Father, it is time to listen to you through your word. We do not desire to hear the mere word of men or of a man, but your word in the pages of your book. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in written form so that it cannot be twisted, it cannot be distorted, it cannot be misunderstood. You have been clear, and we pray now that you would give to us clarity in our thoughts, in our hearts, and that we would be receptive to see what you have for us in here. Help us to think uh, clearly concerning these issues, eternal issues, and to give you glory this morning. We ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a sort of a growing trend within modern evangelicalism to, uh, I would say, avoid, if not outright deny, the doctrine of hell. Hell is not something that is preached from many evangelical pulpits, and even when the gospel, or at least what people commonly think is the gospel, is presented, the subject of hell, the wrath of God, the justice of God, sin, and just punishment for sin, are characteristically avoided. And I know that speaking on the subject of hell is not really the lightest way to begin a message this morning, but we're going to be into that topic before we get done with John 3.16, because Jesus mentions the subject of hell when he talks about those who will perish, because they will not believe upon the Son. And so we might as well dive right into the subject of hell. It has always kind of been the earmark of liberal Christianity to deny the existence of hell. And they say, well, that was really sort of the belief of a a bygone era, a time when people were not as sophisticated or not as knowledgeable, not as intellectually astute, not as well advanced as we are. But we have reached a point where we now know more than the biblical authors knew, and we can now evaluate what the Bible says, and we can now understand things that they never understood. And certainly God is not limited enough to consign men to either heaven or hell. Uh, God is not that cruel. He's not that unfair. We now know him to be a God of love. He's not that cruel, uh, ogre-ish type God of the Old Testament. He's a God of love and grace, and God would never do anything to anybody that would hurt them or punish them. Or the subject of hell is just simply avoided altogether. It's not preached from pulpits. People don't want to address it. They don't want to talk about it because if you're an unbeliever and you're walking in here today and you're wondering what this whole Christianity thing is about and the preacher gets up and he starts talking about hell, you instantly flash back to some idea in your mind of a tent meeting somewhere down south of a guy standing up and throwing his fists and spitting all over people while he screams about sulfur and fire and brimstone and all of that. And your idea of what hell is and why God sends people to hell is completely other than what the Bible says. And so preachers don't want to talk about hell lest they offend people who come in who are actually on their way to hell, unless they repent, the irony of that. But we're going to address the subject of hell because Jesus addresses it in John chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He warned people about hell. He described hell as a place of eternal, conscious, physical torment, as the just punishment of God upon those who will not receive the knowledge of the truth so as to be saved. 
Jesus described hell as a place where the worm does not perish and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever and ever because that is the just punishment of God upon sin. And he described it as a place that was created for the devil and for his angels. And it is, in the Bible, said to be the eternal destiny of all those who will not believe, who will not bow the knee to Christ, who will not turn from their sin, and will not believe the gospel and receive the truth so as to be saved. And men are condemned to hell, men and women are condemned to hell, and they go to hell not because God is cruel, He is loving. And you see the reference to the love of God in John chapter 3.16, which mentions perishing, which is a description of hell. People go to hell not because God is cruel, not because He is an ogre, not because He is unfair, not because He is sadistic. He is none of those things. Men go to hell because they will not receive the truth, and they will not believe. And that's actually what that next section in John 3, verses 17 through 21 describe. They do not and they will not come to the light because their deeds will be exposed. Man is locked in his sin and he loves his sin that even when faced with eternal punishment, the just wrath of God for lawbreaking, he will not turn from his sin. Now the words of Jesus in John 3.16 come in the context of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Remember the self-righteous Pharisee who came to him by night, asked him, uh, or said to him, you are a, a good God, or sorry, not a good God, a good teacher, come from God. And we know this from the signs that you do. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus basically rejected that. And so in the middle of the discussion about verse 9, Jesus turned from talking about the need and the nature of regeneration to discussing the real issue, which is with the heart of Nicodemus, which was unbelief. And Jesus put his finger on Nicodemus's heart and said, you will not believe. And this is it. I've told you earthly things. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You have not believed my word. And you have not believed the word of the only begotten Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. And his warning to Nicodemus is, because of your unbelief, you will perish. And the last couple weeks, we've, or the last couple times we've been together, we've been looking at John 3.16 from the vantage point of the love of God. And we have seen that the verse starts with the love of God, for God so loved the world. And now we've looked at how God's love is manifested in the object that he loved. The entire world, the whole human race, all of humanity, in a general sense, he loved. And it was a real love, a profound love, a deep love, an abiding love that he has for all mankind. He so loved the whole world, even in its sin, he loved the world. Not just his elect, not just his people, but the whole world. And the love of God is also manifested in the gift that he gave. That he gave his son, his only begotten son, he gave. And now today we're looking at the last three, that the love of God is also manifested in the invitation that is offered, that whoever or all those who believe, that is the response that is required, and then the third thing that manifests the love of God is the deliverance that is granted. We see the love of God in this massive invitation that is offered to the world, the response that is required, that of belief, and the deliverance that is granted so that they might not perish, but so that they might have everlasting or eternal life. So let's look at the first one, the invitation that is offered. For God so loved the world, His Son... His only begotten, His unique Son, He gave. So that, and the Greek phrase, is literally all the believing ones, all those who believe. Our English version translates it, whoever believes. So that all of those who believe, all of the believing ones, will not perish. Now there is obviously a group of those who do not believe. And there may even be people sitting here this morning who do not believe on Christ for salvation and will not believe. And you don't have any desire to believe. 
There's obviously a group of people who will perish because they remain in their unbelief. And though God loves the whole world, not all the world benefits from the love of God like we do, do they? What is it that keeps the whole world from embracing and loving that grace and that love and responding to God in a proper way so as to be saved? It is because men love darkness and they remain in their unbelief and they love their sin. And men perish not because God did not love them. Get that in your head. Men perish not because God did not love them. And men perish not because God has not shown them love. He most certainly has. But men perish because they will not embrace that love and respond to that love and return that love in a way that is proper. God has demonstrated His love toward all men by sending His Son into this world to die. And He loves all of humanity. He has shown that love in giving them rain on the just and the unjust, sunshine in the pleasures of life and the enjoyments of life and all of the grace, air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, all of those things that God gives to men. That common grace is evidence of His love for them. But they will perish. But the promise is that all who believe, all the believing ones, get eternal life. They will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we started John 3.16, I told you that John 3.16 answers an error of hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism. Do you remember what that error was? The error that we addressed specifically from John 3.16 was the error that says God has no love whatsoever for anybody in the world save only or accept only His elect. That God has nothing but hatred, contempt, and disdain for all the non-elect, all the people who have never been elect to salvation. Now that is a characteristic, a, a doctrine of hyper-Calvinism. It is certainly not what I believe. I told you that a couple of weeks ago. Well, this verse, and we answered it, by the way, because it says God so loved the world, the cosmos. It doesn't limit it to the elect. And you can't take the word world and say, well, it means elect. It doesn't. It means world. It means humanity. And that's how John uses it. God so loved all of humanity. There's a second error of hyper-Calvinism that's answered in John 3.16, and it is the error of hyper-Calvinism that says you should not and you cannot present the gospel to anybody but the elect. Think about that for just a moment. That is a hyper-Calvinist position. You cannot proclaim or preach or present the gospel to anyone but the elect. And so it is wrong to stand before a gathering of people on a television broadcast or in a stadium or at an evangelistic event like we do at Awana and present the gospel to children or to parents or to a mixed group of people because you have no way of knowing. There might be some non-elect people there. And you cannot tell a non-elect people that God desires for them to be saved. And you can't tell a non-elect person that God loves them and that God has offered them salvation because God has not promised to save any but the elect. And so you cannot offer salvation to a non-elect person. Do you understand that? That's the error of hyper-Calvinism. Since God doesn't love anybody as elect, and He has not promised to save anybody as elect, you cannot therefore present the gospel to a mixed group of people because there might be some non-elect person there, and you can't in good conscience, biblically, present the offer of salvation to them. Now Spurgeon battled against this. It's a ridiculous notion. How do you tell somebody's elect? How do you know that? You can't... Spurgeon used to say, if I could lift up somebody's shirt and see a large E stamped on their belly, which would indicate that they are elect, then I could limit my gospel proclamation to the elect. But since I can't do that, I will proclaim the gospel to all creation, just like I'm commanded to do. The hyper-Calvinist would say you have to wait until see if somebody's giving the earmarks of regeneration, being drawn, looking like they're Christian, interested in spiritual things. Then you can present the gospel to them. 
what does John 3.16 say? That all those who believe. Now friends, it is my conviction that we are to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. To all men. Indiscriminately, without distinction, without any concern whatsoever as to who might be chosen and who might not be chosen. I do not believe that the issue of election has any bearing whatsoever upon the issue of to whom we present the gospel. Those are two entirely separate things. And you keep them distinct. Are there elect and non-elect? Yes, there are. It has nothing to do whatsoever with to whom we present the gospel. We get up and we preach the gospel because the promise in Scripture is that to all of those who believe, and so since the promise in Scripture is that to all who believe, they will inherit eternal life, we present the gospel to all who breathe in hopes that they will believe. That's whom we present the gospel to. The magnanimous nature of the love of God is seen in this invitation that is offered. The promise is that to all who will believe, to any who will believe, they will be saved. And they will not perish but have eternal life. Now the second thing that demonstrates the nature and the character of the love of God is this response that is required of us. Belief. Is that an easy thing or a hard thing? Belief. Is it easy to believe the gospel or is it difficult to believe the gospel? Thinking, thinking. Just a show of hands so I can make sure that everybody's still awake because I know the discussion of hyper-Calvinism, some of you are in about the third stages of anesthesia right now. How many of you think it is easy to believe the gospel? If I leave my hand up long enough, the peer pressure will mount and more people raise it. How many of you think it is in hard or nearly impossible to believe the gospel? About equally divided. I believe that it is impossible to believe the gospel apart from the grace of God. We have the most foolish, the most ridiculous, the most absurd message in all of the world to preach. That our God died on a cross, on a Roman gibbet, 2,000 years ago, and that He rose again and He did this for the sins of men. And that all who will simply believe upon Him and trust Him will escape the wrath of God and inherit eternal life. That is foolishness. It is foolishness to Greeks. It is foolishness to Jews. A stumbling block to Jews. It is foolishness to anybody who would be, quote-unquote, in their right mind as far as the world is concerned. Not only that, but we are told to do this without a multimedia slideshow presentation, but to simply present the gospel, to preach it, which is the most foolish means possible. Take the most foolish message ever delivered, present it in the most foolish means ever possibly conceived, Two people trusting entirely in God to have the glory for the outcome of that work. It is, I believe, entirely impossible, difficult to believe. Because you are asking men to abandon and turn from everything that they cherish and embrace something that to them is inherently repulsive. And that is to worship and serve somebody other than themselves. So it's such a simple response, isn't it? Believe. But though it is simple, it is so difficult and impossible to do because God must do a work in the human heart to make that belief a reality. The term belief occurs over a hundred times in the Gospel of John, three times as many, or twice as many, as in all three of the other Gospels combined. It's one of the major themes of the Gospel of John. At the very end of the book, he says, many other things could be written that are not in this book, not that I've written, but these things are written so that you might what? 
believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in His name. And he wasn't very far into the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, where John shows us that belief is what makes us children of God. But to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Now at the end of chapter 2, we saw that there is a type of belief that does not save. Do you remember the false disciples, the false followers at the end of chapter 2? Flip back if you need to, to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Now when He, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name. Observing, by the way, that's the same word that's used down here in chapter 3. Many believed in His name. Observing His signs, which He was doing, but Jesus, on His part, was not believing on them. That's literally the same word that's used of them, believing on Him. They believed on Jesus, but He did not entrust or commit Himself to them. Why? Because He knew all men, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in men. These were people who believed intellectually in Him, followed Him for all of the goodies, they believed all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons, and they embraced Him outwardly, but without inwardly. And so Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Nicodemus was one of those such men. He had an orthodox understanding of who Christ is. He believed a lot of orthodox things about Jesus, but he still needed to be born again. He was not saved. He had not believed on Jesus in a salvific sense. And so there are people who believe the wrong things. And intellectual belief is not just, uh, sorry, intellectual belief is not all that is necessary for salvation. Intellectual belief puts you in the same camp with the demons who also believe and tremble. That's all that intellectual assent gets for you. So what does it mean to believe? That's an essential question since it seems to me that being born again, whether one goes to heaven or to hell, hinges upon this issue of belief. What does it mean to believe? And how do I know if I have believed the right things and the right way and done the right thing as a result of my belief? What is involved in that? When Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What was he talking about? What kind of belief is that? Is that merely an intellectual assent? And how much does intellectual knowledge in my belief gain me? Let me answer that question. Saving belief, saving faith begins with intellectual assent. There are certain things that I have to understand intellectually in order to be saved. That's where I begin. I begin with this. I begin with understanding who God is. That He's the creator of all things. He's the judge of all things. He is the redeemer of all men who believe that He is the holy, awesome, infinite, eternal God. I see this in creation. I see this revealed in His Word. So I must understand who God is and make sure that I've got the right and the true God. Second, I have to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And I have to know that He died on a cross, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, and that God saves men from their sin on the basis of His work, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and on the basis of nothing else. And I have to understand that God will grant me forgiveness for my sins because I am a lawbreaker and I have violated His law and I am a sinner and I am justly under the wrath of God. Those are the things that I must understand. Now, ironically, those things are seldom presented as a part of what is today given as a gospel message. It seems to me that that is where we must begin. Now, there's other things that I could understand. I could know. I could go beyond that. But it seems to me reasonable to say that that is, I think, what I must believe. Those are understand those things. But it has to go beyond that because the demons also believe that and they tremble. But it must go beyond that. I have to be in my mind rightly understanding truth so that I can respond rightly to truth and to do the right thing. But belief is not just understanding intellectually who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Belief is embracing that through repentance and faith. 
It is casting myself, my hope, my everything upon Him and Him alone. It is resting solely and entirely upon His promise that all who believe in Him, all who turn from their sin and place their faith in His work on the cross, will be saved. It is to cast my confidence so much upon Him as to be able to say, if He fails, then I perish. But if He keeps His word, I will live. Because I have turned from my sin and I have embraced Him. I am no longer merely intellectually convinced, but I have as an act of my will, an act of my volition, an act of my emotions, my mind, my entire being, cast my hope for eternal life upon Him in turning from my sin. That is saving faith. I think the best example that could be offered is that of a parachute. You trust Christ just like you trust a parachute. You're up in a plane, you're looking forward to the jump to come, which is death, and you put on the parachute. You don't just intellectually believe that the parachute exists, and it's under my seat, and it's there if I need it, that's all fine and good, but you put it on, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you put your hope for salvation from the jump to come entirely in that parachute, so that when you bail out of the plane, you're not saying to yourself, yes, I'm trusting the parachute, but I'm also going to flap my arms really hard because I have to do my part. That looked really bizarre, didn't it? That's not, that's not saving faith. You don't trust in Christ plus what you can do. You put the parachute on, you buckle it up, and you jump out of the plane, you say, I trust entirely in that parachute. Now some of you say, yeah, but you have to pull the ripcord. Okay, every analogy limps, and that one limps there. But the idea of faith is that I'm trusting entirely in the parachute to save me from the jump to come, from smashing into the earth at 120 miles an hour. There is a judgment day upon which men will stand before holy God. And there's only one thing that can save them from that jump to come. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we put Him on. And saving faith trusts Christ like it trusts a parachute. It is understanding and believing He is willing to save. He is able to save. He is powerful enough to save. He desires to save. He has promised to save. He has asked this of me. And I will trust Him entirely to do what He says He will do on the basis of repentant faith and trust in Him. His sacrifice is sufficient to pay the penalty for my sin, and I'm trusting solely in that to get me through the judgment, the judgment of God upon my sin. That's believing faith. So the love of God is seen in the invitation that is offered. Whoever, the response that is required, believes, and then the deliverance that is granted, he will not perish, but he will have eternal life. There are two options there. There are two destinies listed there, and they could not be any more opposite than they are. They could not be any more mutually exclusive and far removed. You couldn't get two things more at opposite ends of the spectrum than perishing and eternal life. The perishing is a reference to hell. The eternal life is the reference to heaven. Those who believe will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Now, much could be sort of gleaned if we were to flip to a bunch of different passages of Scripture, but I just want to give you sort of four very fundamental basic truths or observations about these two destinies just from what Jesus said here. First of all, both of these, both life and perishing, are eternal destinies. If the life is eternal, so also is the perishing. Because all people will live for eternity. The question is, where will you live? Will you perish or will you have eternal life? And if the life is eternal, then so also is the perishing. Both of these are eternal destinies. Jesus didn't need to say He will not eternally perish, but He will eternally live. He didn't need to say that. 
Just the mention of eternal life and the fact that it is eternal life is sufficient to show that also the perishing is eternal as well. The second thing that you and I can glean about these two destinies is that these two things don't mix. To have one is to not have the other, and to have the other is to not have the one. You can't both perish and receive eternal life at the same time. You will not spend eternity with some sort of amalgamation of the two. The two shall never mix. If you have received eternal life, then you will spend eternal life never to suffer the presence of the unredeemed or wicked again. Never to suffer the effects of the presence of sin. Never to suffer the effects of the presence of wickedness or evil or any of those things. And if you perish in your sin, having never repented and trusted Christ, then you will never know any of the blessings of life in Christ or any of the joys or the bliss of an eternal salvation in Christ in heaven. The two shall never mix. There will not be a time when all of those who are perishing suddenly sort of morph into life and then everybody is saved in the end. These two eternal destinies are eternally separate, opposite ends of the spectrum. They are both eternal and never the two shall mix. Third, all go to one of those places or the other. Everybody. There's nobody sitting here that is not going to land in heaven or in hell. Nobody here, nobody who has ever lived, is ever going to cease to exist and avoid those two destinies. All go to only those one of those two destinies. And the fourth thing is there are only two destinies. Now what does this do with the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory? Friends, it goes right out the window. There is not a single hint from any passage anywhere in any testament of the doctrine of purgatory. That is a completely fabricated man-made doctrine. Jesus said, those who die either go to heaven or they go to hell. There is no middle ground. There is no proving ground. There is no middle-of-the-road avenue where you spend a little bit of time and then land in one place or the other. There are only two destinies. Now, the first is that of perishing, which is Jesus' description of hell. To perish is to lose everything. To perish is to basically enter eternity without a sin-bearer. It is to enter eternity without having had your sins atoned for and forgiven on the cross because you would not repent and believe the gospel. It is to lose everything. It is to lose everything in this life, and it is to lose the life to come. It doesn't mean to cease to exist. You don't cease to exist when you die. You leave this life, and like stepping from one room into another, you step from time into eternity. Conscious awareness all of the time, no soul sleep, no falling asleep for a period of time, no blacking out or anything. You step from this life into the next life. It is an instantaneous, smooth transition from one to the other, and you step either into eternal bliss with Christ, or you step into eternal perishing, where you lose everything. You lose everything in this life, and you lose all of eternity. You lose it all. That's what perishing is. Now, some people think that hell is a very unreasonable doctrine. They say it seems unreasonable that God would send somebody to hell simply because they have never heard of Jesus or because they've never believed on Jesus. That doesn't seem reasonable to me. Does that seem reasonable to you? doesn't seem reasonable to me at all. But that's not why God sends people to hell. Why does God send people to hell? Not because they haven't believed on Jesus. That's just one of their countless crimes. God sends people to hell because they're liars, thieves, blasphemers, fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, because they're uh, wicked, gossip, slanderers, adulterers, immoral, covetous, greedy, idolaters, disobedient to parents. All of those things are the reasons why God sends people to hell. Not believing in the Son is a major crime, but it's only one crime for which the unbeliever is punished for all of eternity. And those who say that God sending people to hell is not at all a reasonable doctrine, it doesn't sound rational or reasonable or good or right for God to do that, fail to understand usually two things. First, they fail to understand the nature of their sin. They don't see their sin for how God sees it. They don't... Look, you can understand this. You never view your own sin the way you see that same sin in somebody else, right? 
You see somebody else in a sin that you're involved in or that you're doing, and man, you look down your nose, you despise them, you criticize them. You can't believe they're involved in that. But you don't see your own sin that way. We always view our own sin far in a far better light than we view the sin in others. We never see ourselves as wicked, bad, or horrible people. Man in his fallen state, his unregenerate state, loves to proclaim his ungoodness, or his own goodness. Not ungoodness, which would be badness. He loves to proclaim his own goodness. And he thinks he's good, and he believes he's good. And so he thinks it's unreasonable that God would send him to hell for a few lies, for a few lusts, for a few blasphemies, for a few immoral acts, for a little bit of greed and covetousness. That doesn't sound right. Eternity in hell for those small acts? The second thing they fail to understand or take into account is the nature of the being against whom they have sinned. Now, I used an illustration with the Iwana kids a couple months ago when I was doing an Ask the Pastor night, and I'm going to use it here because this is a good illustration. And I've used this in witnessing to people. In fact, I think I used it uh, last summer down at the beach when we were handing out tracts with some of the people that were standing there. Let me give you a scenario. I'm out on the street tomorrow. Uh, I'm out on the street this afternoon at the store or whatever, and I see a beggar, and he asks me if I have some loose change. And I lie to him, and I say, no, I don't have any loose change, even though I know in my, wallet, my pocket I've got a little bit of loose change. And I know that, and I tell him a lie. What's going to happen to me for lying to a beggar? Absolutely nothing. No ramifications. Now I go home this afternoon after being at the store and I lie to my wife and I get caught. What's going to happen to me? I'm going to get some macaroni and cheese for dinner, uh, sleep on the couch, all horrible things, but life could be worse. They maybe say, Jim, you don't, don't live with my wife. Obviously, if I lied to my wife, it would be a lot worse than that. But obviously the consequences are going to be worse than lying to the beggar. Now I go to work tomorrow morning and I lie to my boss and I get caught. What's he going to do? He's going to fire me. Then I go down and I lie to the judge and I get caught. What's going to happen to me for lying to the judge? I'm going to go to jail. Now, I've done the same thing all four times. I've, I've, it's the same person in each scenario. It's the same act in each scenario. The same person doing the same thing. That's me lying. But what has changed in each one of those scenarios that justifies or warrants the greater uh, repercussions or consequences? It is the person against whom I have committed the offense. I lie to a beggar. Nothing happens. I lie to my wife. I get macaroni and cheese for dinner. I lie to my boss, I get fired. I lie to the judge, I go to jail. What has changed in the scenario? The person against whom the crime was committed. See, sin, all sin, is not committed primarily against other people or against myself. It is committed against, listen, the greatest being in all of the universe. The most holy, the most infinite, the most righteous, the most perfect being that could possibly exist. Infinite in all of his perfections. That is the one against whom we have sinned. The smallest infraction is worthy of eternal punishment because of the greatness of the being against whom the infraction is committed. Is hell reasonable? Hell is absolutely reasonable when we understand what sin is and we take into account the being against whom we have sinned. Now those who perish, perish not because God did not love them and not because God did not send His Son. Those who perish, perish because they will not embrace the truth. They will not embrace the truth. They will not turn from their sin. They will not come to the light. They love darkness and they love their sin. But then there is life on the other side of the spectrum. Not only is there the perishing, but the opposite is life. And life is also a major theme in the Gospel of John. Used 47 times. Sometimes it speaks of physical life, like John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. It's speaking of physical life, not spiritual life. But this Gospel is thick with references to spiritual life and spiritual living. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
John 5.24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. No, no man come, or I am the, sorry, that's one reference. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. All of those familiar references where John and Jesus are speaking of the subject of life. Those who do not perish receive eternal life. Now, since it's mentioned so much in the Gospel of John, we're going to give it more attention probably at a later time than we are today. And we're going to sort of be expounding the subject of, of life and eternal life all the way through the Gospel of John. But let me just give you two things to keep in mind, two characteristics this morning for your own consideration. The first is this. Eternal life is something that you now possess. It is your present possession. Eternal life is not something that God will give to you when you die. Eternal life is not something that you get after you die. Eternal life is something that is the current reality for you now. That is what it means to be regenerated. I was born a sinner dead. I have been given life. What kind of life have I been given? By what type of life do I now, right this minute, live? Spiritually. Being made alive in the Spirit. What life is that that's in me? It's eternal life. It is my present possession. It is not a future anticipation, a future hope. They say, but Jim, you still sin. I do. And, and I still struggle against sin. Yes, you do. And I'm not enjoying heaven right now. How can you say that I'm enjoying eternal life? Though you're not enjoying heaven right now, you are living your eternal life out here on earth. And that eternal life will be lived here on earth till the day that you die and through all of eternity because it is your current possession. It's not something you have to wait to get. He came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly here. Spiritual life is your present possession. That is the life by which you have been made alive in the act of regeneration. You have been given new life. You have been made alive spiritually. And eternal life is the life that you now live. And it will go on for all of eternity. So first, it is your present possession. Second, and this really should go without saying, but I have to say it. It is eternal. It's eternal. Can you lose it? If you can lose it, in what sense is it eternal? How can you lose something that is eternal? If you have been given eternal life, friends, you will not lose that life. And that life will not ebb and it will not flow and it will not fade away. It will not wither up and die. In no sense at all, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, in no sense at all can you say that I have eternal life. You might say I have temporary life. You might say I have great life. You might say, I have a good life, but you cannot say that it is eternal. What kind of a life is it that ebbs and flows and comes and goes and comes with the wind and goes here? How do you sing that great Christian hymn, I have a new name written down in pencil? <laughs> yes, it's there, and now it's not. How do, you, how do you do that? You have life one day and not the next day? In no sense is that eternal life. Eternal life is eternal life. And those who receive eternal life... Live forever. From the moment of salvation, from the moment of regeneration, they live in that new life for all of eternity. Charles Spurgeon said this, I would not give two pins for that trumpery temporal salvation which some proclaim, which floats the soul for a while and then ebbs away to apostasy. And I would agree with that. I wouldn't give two cents for that type of salvation. I want a salvation that is able to say, you place your faith in me, and I will keep you from this point all the way through the day of judgment and for all of eternity. 
And I end with one last quote from Spurgeon because nobody could say this better than Spurgeon did. What is this but a life that shall last through your threescore years and ten? A life that shall last you should you outlive a century. A life that will still flourish when you lie at at the grave's mouth. A life that will abide when you have quitted the body and left it rotting in the tomb. A life that will continue when your body is raised again and you shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is a life that will outshine those stars and yon sun and moon. A life that shall be co-equal with the life of the Eternal Father. As long as there is a God, the believer shall not only exist but live. As long as there is a heaven, you shall enjoy it. As long as there is a Christ, you shall live in His love. And as long as there is an eternity, you shall continue to fill it with joy. That is eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the promise that You have given. Our hope is cast upon Christ and Christ alone. We thank You that He is willing that He is able to save those who come to Him in faith. We thank You that He is not only able to save us, but He is able to save us completely. He does not struggle to do so. He joyfully does so. We thank You for the faith and repentance that You have brought to us that have made these realities ours, and for the regeneration that You have granted us through Your Son. Thank You for Your Spirit. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for our hope and our confidence, our assurance, our security. All of these things are gifts from You, We are grateful for them. And we pray, God, that any who are sitting here who do not know that life in Christ, that they would repent, that you would grant them that repentance, turn their hearts to you, and may they come to know that love that you have, which sent your Son to be their Redeemer. We pray, O God, that you would do this work and be pleased to draw men and women to Christ and encourage our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.